Hello everyone, welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. With me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover on the show, feel free to email us at fromnowheretonothingpodcast at gmail.com or contact us on our Facebook page. We've spent the past three episodes looking at the works of two philosophers, an episode each to explore them, and a third to compare and contrast their ideas, which appear contradictory at the surface level. And while we hope this demonstration has been useful for honing your philosophical skill set, the lesson is not quite complete. When attempting to find truth, examining each opposing argument objectively is step one. Comparing and contrasting them is step two. And step three is synthesizing a new position based not only on what you've discovered, but on what others have rationalized from diverse contexts as well. This week, we'll tie up our discussion of Montaigne and Pascal by looking at two philosophers who added to their work, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Alexis de Tocqueville. I love that because no lesson is ever complete, but, <laughs> but we do have to move on to other things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this has been uh, a long, I mean, we've done philosophers in the past, but it's usually one here, one there. Hmm. We've done four solid episodes with, with philosophers. So we talked about it earlier in the week. We'll get, we'll get back to our weird abstract <laughs> concepts next, you know, next episode, but, yes, but we, we really, we wanted to, uh, and you know it's doing justice to the book that we based this this little mini series on. You know why why we are restless. Mm -hmm. um, you know it's just they did a fantastic job of of walking through these philosophers and, and demonstrating the uh, you know the the contradictory nature and also the consistent thread that runs through them about why humans are the way they are. Well, that's the compelling thing about the book, and I'm glad you mentioned that because anybody that this is a book. I, I hope people will read it's because it's what Joel was talking about a moment ago. It's you read about philosophers, you read the primary, you, you dive in, read some of the primary material, you read secondary material, and then you try to put it into a context of how does it inform you? How does it have any utility to you at this moment? Or is it just interesting, which is fine in itself. But that's, I think that is why we're lingering with this, and especially these two, Rousseau and Tocqueville, because, because really at this moment in our political lives, our social lives, on a planetary scale and on a micro scale to just one country, ours, uh, Rousseau and Tocqueville are very um, influential in where we what we were and how we see ourselves and how other people see us. Yeah. And you touched on something that was real important there, which was, um, you know, reading primary sources and then reading secondary sources and, and that sort of thing, which is why, you know, it's important to point out that you shouldn't be getting all of your philosophy from our show because <laughs> we're a secondary source. Right. And in doing research for this episode, one thing that I saw pop up time and again about the works of Rousseau and the works of Tocqueville were the secondary sources who who had read them and interpreted them and, and even translated the original words and stuff um, would come to wildly different conclusions about what these guys were yeah. saying. So um, it is important to to read 
primary sources for yourself and to see what you think it's saying um and to keep in mind the limits of translation which we've talked i think we've dedicated a whole episode to we, it in we the past. and we and we will continue to talk about it. and 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 adjacent to that is or codicil to that is is this in reading a primary source no one is saying to you uh, this is an official curriculum and therefore you must read all of the social contract before you have anything to say about jean-jacques rousseau no but if you read a section of the social contract, though it is, yes, in translation, you can sometimes be very surprised when people have told you what Rousseau says and then you read it yourself. The same th thing is true of Tocqueville as we go into this. Democracy in America was a two-volume set of books that was put into one volume. It's over 900 pages long. It's fascinating. It's not something you're going to read beginning to end, quite probably. But just diving in and reading some paragraphs or reading a few pages or reading a, a section really gets your mind working on what was going on. This, this Frenchman <laughs> and his friend, who never gets much mentioned uh, in, in popular ways, came to the United States in the 1830s, 1830, 31, ostensibly to study new kinds of penal systems. Really what they were doing is they wanted to find out what this, this country was about. And they were thinking about that in terms of, because Tocqueville was born when Napoleon was raised to emperor. Mm. <laughs> and there's a movie out there now, but it's not all that accurate, but it's still Joaquin Phoenix. Anyway, so, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> The French revolutions, plural, had a very different effect on the populations than the American Revolution did. And so one set of people involved in a revolution want to see what people in a different revolution, what spun off from that. He, 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 he it took eight years to write it. It does voluminous notebooks, um, didn't, published the book until nine years after they were here. I mean, so I'm just, I'm just tossing this out just at, at the beginning of saying, okay, so somebody goes, they interview a bunch of people, something like uh, uh, 200 or more people that Tocqueville actually uh, has significant interviews with across the then country uh, and drawing conclusions about democracy that were based on essentially notions of the time. So they aren't, it's not democracy about enslaved people. It's not democracy about black people. It's not democracy about women. Mm. And so it's very limited in that. And yet it's where the, the country seemed to be at that moment. And he was it's pretty, it's really compellingly honest when you read it and say, well, he still gets something about us now. <laughs> even. Um, and, and so you move from reading that primary source and saying, okay, so why did I feel that way? Why did I think this particular thing that he says still has relevance? What do I want to do with that? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's really important because, you know, and people might be wondering at this point, so what's, what's the connection between Pascal and Montaigne? But I think we'll get to that we'll get in a minute. But the big shift with these two versus those other two is that Rousseau and Tocqueville have a uh, a highly political element to their philosophies, which is why it's very important to understand 
the translation and to read the primary sources because any secondary source that you're going to hear about is going to be canted towards their philosophy because of politic personal political beliefs right hmm. and as a side note today is the what the 172 years since napoleon was raised to power december 2nd 1851 so it's, it's, a, it's a relevant time to be talking about it but so um before we dive in we've done this with with each of the past three episodes you want to provide just a brief recap on the main points that we've talked about up to this point with montaigne and, and pascal okay um montaigne and pascal both had unusual growing ups of experiences different experiences with their education and um parental involvement. Both, therefore, come out of a situation that we wouldn't necessarily call a standard model. So we put that aside for a moment. Montaigne, very briefly, Montaigne decides that to the, the best way to live a life is to examine one's own position within the experiences one has. He brings the I letter i i into writing and that's uh, enormous in the 1500s and and he essentially says well if you are interested in something pursue it if you're interested in something else pursue it he's he's the demigod of polymath <laughs> <laughs> um, but don't worry about being so engaged in it that you don't be engaged in the next thing he, he's uh, about eclecticism without necessarily being um, specializing <laughs> in things. He's very interested in, well, eat when you want to eat, sleep when you want to sleep, th those kind of things. Look at a butterfly all day if you want to, but what, what are you learning? Oh, what's that have to do with the rest of your whole, this thing that is called you? And that was revolutionary in its own way. All right, we, we move on roughly a century or less, less with with Pascal, and Pascal is the polymath, polymath, and 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 designs probability or parts of the idea of probability and rethinking cylinders and uh, the very nature of a vacuum and very scientific. And this is when he's a teenager, <laughs> early twenties, and and then has. Uh, uh, a really hard look at religion as two branches, particularly of Catholicism, and uh, decides that one branch is far too easygoing, too Montaigne-like. I think he would associate the Jesuits with the Mon with Montaigne, and it's interesting because uh, on, from the outside, of often the Jesuits got the uh, the reputation of being. The intellectuals of the Catholicism. Um, there are others within Catholicism who say no, no, not even close. Whereas there, his sister was involved with the Jansenists, um, was uh, were much more ascetic and demanding, and and so he was trying to figure that out and 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 trying to sort out the nature of human nature, basically, and and uh, arrives at. Um, he wrote a number of things, but what he's often uh, talked about is his book, Pense, or Thoughts. 
And that's sort of a connection with Montaigne, who writes essays. The word was coined in the French for thoughts or explorations. And uh, Pascal's pensées are, are not evenly distributed there. They, they don't point to one determinable viewpoint about life necessarily. People have worked on subcategorizing some parts of it. But essentially, uh, Pascal says, look, we aren't demons. We aren't beasts in the mud. We also aren't angels. We are something in between, <clears throat> and we constantly have to wrestle with ourselves in order to find our better natures. And that doesn't mean God is going to intervene and tell us anything about that. And it's possible to say that there isn't a God, but uh, if you live in this wrestling match in your mind and heart and soul of, of, that there might be a God, but you're trying to figure out what your place is in the universe, then that probably will benefit you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that's, that's a good recap. And I think that it helps listeners maybe, you know, we've talked very briefly about Rousseau and Tocqueville already helps sort of draw that thread. Right. Mm -hmm. So if, if you think about the title of the book, why we are restless, right? Montaigne mm -hmm. sort of says, well, you know, we shouldn't be restless. We should, we should just be focused on, you know, what we're doing in the moment and, in, and enjoy it and be involved with it. And Pascal's saying, well, there's, we need, we need to be thinking about there as being something bigger. You know, there, there, we need to be wrestling with, with our, our humanity and, and what it means in the grand scheme of the universe. And yet there's a restlessness in both of those positions. Yeah. I'm going to read this. I'm going to read that. I'm going to read this. I'm interested. I'm thinking about that. Well, there, you know, you can see how that skitterish. Kind yeah. Of thing. And you mentioned it in the last episode, um, towards the end when we were talking about it, like, um, you know, Montaigne appears to be very free. Um, but the, the connecting thread with the two is both of them were, were wrestling with, you know, the limitation, the mortality of humans, right? And so Montaigne's position appears to be very um, free and easygoing and stuff, but that is in reaction to thoughts about the limited lifespan of, of human yeah. beings and what to do with it. So Rousseau and Tocqueville, um, where they add to this conversation is whereas, you know, Montaigne and Pascal, um, to me, seem very ontological, Tocqueville and Rousseau are more political rather than just sort of thinking about the individual um, in relative isolation or in the context of metaphysical structures. Yeah, that's, that's they're good. thinking about it well in terms said. of yeah. societal context and yeah. these sorts of things. So, and so just the same way that Montaigne um, sort of, uh, you know, started the essay, Rousseau sort of started the autobiography. So can you provide us with a brief overview of Rousseau's life? Rousseau is the, I, I think his life is the, the <coughs> to, to go to Gilbert and Sullivan, the, the operetta writers, he's, a, he's, he's the very model of a modern restless individual. I'm <laughs> badly paraphrasing, but paraphrasing, but this is somebody, his mom dies after he's born. He's, He's uh, self-educated for the most part. He reads Plutarch. He he lived with an aunt. His, his father's gone. He's or abandoned. He's he's he lives with a minister for a little while. He's he's appointed 
uh, to, to uh, uh, a notary to work for a bit as a kid, as a kid. And then he's, then he's uh, apprenticing with an engraver. It was very abusive to him. And, and so he's, he's trying to deal with Catholicism because of people he respected, particularly a woman he respected who was a friend who was Catholic. And, and, and hear the restlessness in all of that mm -hmm. and the trying to, and trying to, who am I? Who am I? I don't, I don't know my mother. My father's gone. I don't, you know, that, you know, it's so, it's so easy to talk about stories like that and to just settle down and think. And, and plentiful people in our lives did not have what, what people like to paint as the ideal circumstance. Sooner or later, we, we lose our parents. We, you know that, I know that, we've, we've, we all do. Some of us lose them in terrible circumstances before they even get started. And we could reference certain wars going on right now. But that always happens and it's horrible. It's a horror. So, but it's still a complexity in an individual and they're trying to put themselves together. And then you get associated with other people who are abusive. And then you, and then you, you're, the best way you're teaching yourself is, is learning is by teaching yourself. The thing that I, I've, I've got to find more out about, I've, I've never really pursued this, but in rethinking my notes and doing some fresh thinking about it uh, this week, uh, Rousseau invented a, a musical notation system that didn't really go anywhere. Hmm. I got to talk to my son about that. Yeah. I'm, really I'm really curious about that because uh, he wrote an opera and he thought of his, his opera was more important than some of the philosophical writings that he did not. People didn't generally think it was more important, but but isn't it curious that his music was was that important to him? Since we always talk about music, uh, he he's he's interested in education when he's in his late twenties, but he finds out he's not really a teacher and doesn't really want to be a teacher. Well, there are a lot of people who go through that path and honestly come to that, and and then he gets an ambassadorial position and and. And this is Rousseau. He gets into quarrels with the position, with the person he got the position with. And so he loses it. Rousseau is into quarreling mm -hmm. a lot and, and develops, uh, uh, situations where he's skidding around. He, he later meets, uh, Diderot and D'Alembert, uh, uh, people who were putting together uh, philosophers themselves highly embedded in the social system, upper so crust, and, and we're writing this thing called the encyc we call encyclopedia. First encyclopedia. Hmm. And, and, and they invited Rousseau to write a, a, uh, an entry on music. Yeah. Uh, and then, and, and, but then he, and he writes his opera and he, he writes, uh, a, a, what he calls a discourse on arts and sciences, which is very interesting. Uh, but he, he writes an opera, but then he refuses to be presented to uh, Louis the Fifteenth. When you get presented to a king <laughs> and you've written an opera and you want to keep writing, you you make nice, right? He didn't. I'm not going to be in front of the king. I'm not talking to the king. <laughs> His sponsorships are gone. There's the the quarreling again. Uh, and I know this sounds like, like a lot of detail, but really we're going rapidly through. Uh, a life here. Uh, he writes, uh, he, he goes back, <laughs> he's going back and forth between 
Paris and Geneva and Switzerland and Paris and back and forth, depending on who's popular and who he's in the bad graces of. Bouncy, yeah. bouncy, bouncy, bouncy. Right? And, and he writes a discourse on inequality. And he goes back to being Protestant because it serves the purposes for a moment. And then he writes a lot between 1758 and 1762. So, I mean, it, it, Rousseau lived for, he lived to be 66, something like that. Uh, but those four years, in those four years, he produced uh, uh, a thing called Letters Written from the Mountain. He uh, meets David Hume. David Hume invites him to England. Uh, but then he gets into fights with David Hume. And then he has, to, and Hume was a major philosopher, and we've talked about him before. And then he writes a book called, uh, <laughs> it's a marvelous title, uh, A Dialogue. Rousseau, judge of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. This is a fascinating dialogue. Even if you don't read the whole thing, it's a, a man dismantling himself as a man hmm. from the outside, as if he's a, as if he can be both observer and it's kind of meta. Long before that word was ever that that uh, was ever uh, developed, but he he thought he was an outsider. We hear Trump and all these people, I'm an outsider, baloney. This guy was an outsider because he put himself outside. He did not have great connections with anybody, even though they were often, um, they were often uh, let him in. Uh, he, he thinks there's a great antithesis between society and, and men's nature or human nature. And, and, the idea of that and the idea of that there's an artificial uniformity and that when you conform, then you have given up uh, what it is that you uh, that a human is really about, and so society is a gross hypocrisy, and 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 the notion of property is is what has destroyed it all. That's pretty much Rousseau. Yeah, no, I really like that. Like you said, it's it's very detailed and it's very long, but it's important because for me, you know, philosophy aside, looking at the biography of Rousseau psychologically. And contextually mm. adds, you know, it, it really illuminates a lot of his philosophy, right? Because, you know, <laughs> I think that people are tempted to look at it and say, hey, this, this is all BS or this is all good, right? And that's sort of mm. a microcosm of <laughs> the journey of Rousseau throughout his life, right? He was, he was sort of a nomad, like you mentioned. And just and irresponsible from, from the yeah. viewpoint of most of it. He had five children with an uneducated woman, a washerwoman. All five of those children went to what they call foundling homes. Yeah. That's it. He's done. Yeah. There's dismissive. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, he's just a nomad traveling from place to place, depending on whose political good graces he was in, what religion he was espousing. And, and you, you go back to his early life and you see just the tumultuous nature of all of his relationships from the beginning, you know, and that, and so what, what would somebody be likely to develop into given the personal context, right? The tumultuousness of the relationships, yeah. the, the, the inequality of, of the power dynamics in these relationships early on, and then put into the context of, of, of a, a revolutionary time and a religious uh, schism of, of sorts. So it's conflict on all sides. You know, it's, it's, it's 
polarity on on all sides. And I think that that's where um, there, it's important context for his philosophy. Yep. So how did Rousseau's philosophy um, build on the interactions between Montaigne and Pascal? What, what was it saying? The Pascal, we'll start with Pascal was asserting that there is a human nature. He's not sure what it is necessarily. It's fraught. It's um, rambunctiously muddy. But it's there and that we're trying to make ourselves better. Rousseau said the very act, well, he didn't say it's exactly, but this is often what it is. The very act of trying to make oneself better takes one further away from one's own nature. Hmm. Um. So I think he'd, he'd, he would tip more toward Montaigne in the idea that you're trying to be true to who you are, but then he would eschew Montaigne for having had government positions. And so he could retire to his library, of course, because, but, but Montaigne's, uh, put away some of those government positions and said, nope. He stayed being mayor for a long time of a small place, but uh, so I think there were. Th- I think that probably Rousseau would be closer to Montaigne on that. Yeah, and so I think that where this sort of stems from is again in in during this time there was religious conflict between Catholics and, and Protestants, mm. but the one thing that they agreed upon was this biblical principle that. Uh, human nature is flawed and it's corrected through religion. So Rousseau, being the combative and op- oppositional person he was, said, no, humans are inherently good and it's <laughs> everything else that corrupts them, right? Yeah. So that, you know, again, that's sort of a, a microcosm of, of his himself in a, in a and, nutshell. And when, we, and when we follow through on, I mean, it all sounds great, doesn't it? That means, yeah. If but, I have kids, I'm not going to. Exactly. You know, I, the, the thing is, for, again, psychologically, was he using that position or did he arrive at that position in order to um, justify his, his behavior and his, his life, you know? I, I think any human does some rationalization. I don't think Rousseau was, Rousseau was talking too much about his relationship with God. Uh, I think that he believed that he had one and who, who among us can, can we ever address that um but it was it had to have been fractious um and i think that there's that of pascal of in in i mean you know rousseau finally gets to the place where he's sort of like montaigne he's sort of a house on an island basically living by himself until he he finds out that there are other people really close by he's other people give him the space in which to be himself. And therefore he can say, of oh, man has to, there's no, he develops his political views. And the thing is that his political views had some effect on the founders of our country and, and had some effect of, of being someone who was uh, sometimes in Paris, sometimes in Switzerland had an effect on, on the revolutions in French, in France, France. It's so it's, we can't just write it off about this. It's major stuff. The, the social contract 
is about uh, how you set up a state, a country, a, a, a government, so that uh, the people can be most free and most democratic. And he asserted that you cannot be democratic with a representative government. Everyone has to have a vote, and 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 everyone has to be able to be uh, individual. Well, you know, at some point you have to say, well, let's be individual together. And and at some point, <laughs> sort of like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, <laughs> let's be independent together, says the Alfred Rudolph. Uh, but, it, but Rousseau eventually comes to the place where an authoritarianism is really the only answer. That you will yourself to the will of the state and the will of the state is at its best the will of all the individuals together and so you can't go wrong but he's talking about a government that fits like one small city hmm. which would be like perry right <laughs> you know or warsaw where i live that this is not a model that can work because they weren't they weren't projecting models that could work for populations of millions and millions and millions of people uh, that that wasn't thinkable then, uh, and so he's really very difficult because his his views one can find very easily uh, uh, supporting the ideas of autocracy and even fascism that is not something that we would want to go to, but the idea that there is a contract between a government and an individual that's really where where the essence of it is. Yeah, yeah, and again, I you know. I sort of, you see this, I, I wonder how much of this arose from the unequal power dynamics that were demonstrated throughout his early life, mm -hmm. you know, the, the abusive relationships and, and things that he was exposed to sort of filtering into his ideas of this at a, at a, a political or a state level, right? Um, this idea that you have to, you have to make a contract between, um, you know, the individual and the state in order to establish a you know something that is is meaningful for them both yeah so yeah you touched on a really important thread but i don't want to pull on it until <laughs> we get through tocqueville because i think it's going to okay. be a, yeah. a highlight of the discussion so what well, can you tell us a little bit about tocqueville's life <sighs> he's upper middle class he's he's uh, somebody who who presumably be going places he's interested in governments and systems he's um he's a young exuberant student um he wants to find out what makes people tick <laughs> and and so to me he's an early sociologist before the term is mm. is coined um and and that sociological push is really what drives him. I mean, the, the, his work about democracy in America is probably the most memorable thing for us about him. Um, and 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 some of the things that that he says are still useful uh, to us to 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 hear, but we won't we won't go into that yet. Uh, uh, I, I think that his willingness to explore, I mean, think about it. You, you, you're relatively young. You decide 
to go to a place that is totally bubbling. It hasn't, it, it, it's been around for maybe 50 years. <laughs> and, and you're going to go from one end of it to the other as it existed at that time and talk to people and watch them and <clears throat> interact with them. And that, that takes, I think, um, uh, a measure of courage that, um, to me, uh, validates him. Uh, he, he, he lives what he thinks. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, a you know, sociologist is a, a really great term for him because that is what he was trying to do. Right. We, we talked about a little bit, um, early in the episode, you know, yeah. America was a fledgling democracy or representative republic, um, that evolved out of tumultuous colonial circumstances. Now, France was attempting to become a, a, a similar government, but it was coming from a different place. It was coming from a, an aristocracy that was, you know, fading into um, obscurity. Yeah. Fading is probably the wrong word. Violently. Yeah. Violently, <laughs> violently <laughs> devolving. Yeah, Deconstructed, de yeah. So, so he was kind of looking at, okay, if this is where France wants to go, um, how do we how do we contextualize that and what does that mean based off of where france came from right and and how how it interacts with where whatever and his what parents America. his parents is he was aristocratic he held government positions his parents escaped the guillotine hmm. lots of others of his compatriots did not your parents heads are lopped off because they're of a certain social order See, we, we say these things, well, isn't, you know, isn't it, that was then, this is now, but I think that part of what I find fascinating about history is, is the necessity through literature of slowing down and getting inside the minds of somebody. And if you think your parents are going to be killed, it's because other people around you, their parents are killed just because of who they are that's got to have a big effect on where you think your country ought to be and where the government, what the government ought to be doing. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think to slow down and take that in, uh, is important because it's, well, he was an aristocrat and he was, he was born with a silver spoon and yeah, into a time when people with silver spoons were having their heads taken off and violence was the rule of the day and, and, and. Yeah. And you know, this, that highlights um, the importance. We did a whole episode on historicity, right? Yes. This idea yes. of, you know, history is not, it's presented to us as an objective set of facts that occurred in the past, but that's not really the way history works. And historicity is this idea of, of looking at how history is presented through different lenses and what the meaning of it is. And so, like you said, sure, the objective facts of the matter is that aristocrats had it better than everybody else and then at some point they had their heads slapped off and then other people took over but depending on whether or not you're an aristocrat or what country you're in or all these other things your personal experience of it and how that filters into your work is very important so it's very important to every individual but especially when we're looking at people who had an amplified influence on future thought you know, like Rousseau on, on the Founding Fathers and, you know, Tocqueville on, on you know, the yes, reflections of Yes, come to it. And I, and I think this is, 
has so many things today. This is about Gaza too, as one example, but come to it. When you realize when you wake up, somebody can kill you. When you wake up, you have nothing. When you wake up, everything is devastated. That's paralyzingly enormous. And, and here's a young person who wanted to do something about that. Hmm. And, and it's, 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 it's remarkable in some ways because long after he does, he comes to America and, and, and writes the, the book, the first edition of the, the two books. Um, he's trying to find ways to do a, a progressive tax according to how much you have. He's trying to find ways to, to get better union wages. He's really concerned about workers and he's concerned that he better, people better do something about workers because otherwise, they're going to become socialist. But the very idea of a progressive tax and working with workers and a better wage now is considered socialist by people, right? We don't know what we're talking about generally. We like to throw these terms around. And so I, I, I have, um, I have, uh, kind of an empathy for Tocqueville because he, he gets into a position where he, nobody trusts him. With an aristocrat, but he's trying to get better wages. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's all over the map for people. And therefore he's, he's essentially not, not trustable. Yeah. And you see in that, I see reflected, um, Pascal in some ways, not, not politically, but just in the method of, of thinking, right? Because yeah, Tocqueville, yeah, yeah. you know, he, he switched between political parties, between left center and right center and, and, you know, what you, I think what you see with the two of them are people who are struggling with ideas and that struggle is exemplified by in not holding an allegiance to a position, right? To, to, to challenging and thinking about things, which are noble traits, but in a world where you're expected to hold allegiances and you're expected to take positions on things, yeah. you become somebody who is unreliable or you know not not trustworthy and he finally finds a way <clears throat> toward the end to be he's he's he he works on writing amendments to the constitution in his countries particularly about how presidential election would take place so he does find his way back to them but it's just you know it's, i i think it's he doesn't just throw up his hands and go drink champagne somewhere and say no i can't do anything about this um, but I, I think the idea of travel is really what makes him, him an outsider. I mean, one of the things about that, that goes through all of these people that we've been talking about is this idea of what makes an outsider. <clears throat> and now politicians in our country like to wear that, that, that name as a badge of honor when they have no business claiming it. Don't, you know, I've, I had, I had none of the advantages. <laughs> you know, or, or then, then there are, there are, there are politicians who are outsiders who are the kinds of politicians that, that, that Tocqueville was warning about the dark side of, of the United States that he, that he would, was, was talking about in his book, um, is that people who ought to be, uh, standing up and working for office the very people who said, 
are you kidding me? I'm not going to do this. I've got, I've got my wealth. I've got my privilege. I don't, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm educated. I can do other things with that education. And that people would be electing people who are ignorant or, or chosen, their ignorance is chosen, who, who don't, uh, don't have any education, who aren't interested in learning about this, the systems and mechanism of government. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that idea of being an outsider is, is very interesting. And I've talked about this on a few of the guest episodes that I've been on over the past few weeks. And when they come out, I'll, I'll put links to them on, on the, yeah, the Facebook page. But, um, you know, I get, I get asked a lot about, you know, uh, you know, obviously a lot of the shows I'm on are not philosophy shows. And so they want to know about <laughs> philosophy, right? And so the way I sort of try to put it in a nutshell for them is, you know, you have to, take ideas and do what we've done over the past few episodes, right? Try to look at positions objectively, try to compare and contrast them, find similarities, find differences. Um, think about it, you know, bring in other contextual players and synthesize a position of your own. To do anything else is just adopting somebody else's thoughts as your own unreflectively, reflexively and unreflectively and that is the problem with a lot of society. And I think that all four of these philosophers identified that. And that's part yeah, of what made them outsiders smooth. and part of what still makes people like that outsiders to this day, right? You know, it's tribalism is not a new thing, right? It is, it's an evolutionary thing that goes back to the very beginnings of humanity. Now it's yep. ebbed and, and waned throughout, um, history. Um, but regardless, there's all what's always made people outsiders, right? Is, is if you're not willing to give allegiance to somebody and you're going to always look at ideas on their merits and, and change positions on things, that's always going to make you an outsider, right? Mm -hmm. But it, mm -hmm. yeah, you can't imagine it in, in different ways though, right? Montaigne, I, you know, he didn't, you know, we've talked about it. He didn't lock himself in his study and never leave for 30 years, but. He spent a lot of time there, whereas Tokyo yeah. traveled to America. You know, he, yeah. he wrote on all the Algeria and, and was right. all over. And he read, but he was out there <coughs> living. Right. And Rousseau, mm. okay, so he was in, in France, you know, he's in Europe, but he was all over the place moving around, right? So the, the physical movement isn't necessary to being an outsider, right? It was, it was the intellectual, um, you know, standings. The engagement with people different than yourself. Yeah. So, um, I think that now's a good time to, to bring in, I think what Rousseau and Tocqueville both add to this conversation that becomes a very interesting, um, discussion, which is when they're looking at politics, their primary concern is the balance between liberty and equality. Mm -hmm. So, do you want to talk about what they said about it? And then maybe we can discuss a little bit philosophically yeah, ourselves. Yeah, I, 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 this is a very important point. Um, equality for Tocqueville seeming that for, I can't claim to have read everything Tocqueville wrote, but democracy in America is a great big chunk. And it, it just, I, I keep going back to it. You just, you find things. I don't agree with him about everything, but, and that's not the point. I, I don't need to. He makes us think about, he just said, equality and liberty. And an equality 
of individualism, which is Tocqueville going one, I think, step further than or differently than Rousseau, means a responsibility to your, yourself and to the collective. And, and he's, his concern was that if you, if you have to keep listing more and more rights that you have, it, it means that your system has, uh, uh, is degenerating, that it should be assumed that all of those rights are there in the first place. And that if rights have to be delineated, 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 it means that you're acknowledging that your system is one of, uh, generally of coercion and, um, that you're tossing bones to people, which they already had in the first place, but, but which will then cause them to be more quiescent and, um, acquiesce to whatever this, the government wants. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of like Rousseau in, in, in the sense of, of you're free because you say you're free. Well, that's, that's great, except if somebody puts you into, uh, makes you enslaved physically. I mean, they, they don't address that nearly as much as they, they need to, but in your mind, you're free. That, if, if, if you, by the very nature of being a human being, you are free. That's a whole lot different than having a document that, that says that chapter and verse. But the more chapter and verse that you get, the more rules that there are, then, um, for both of them, that diminishes the idea of equality. But again, we have to remember the context. <laughs> White guys with property were all equal. <laughs> they didn't need a bunch of rules to say, uh, but it's only when other people who are asserting, yeah, but we are equal too. So I, I, I disagree with both Rousseau and Tocqueville because they were, as, as I am limited as a human being in the, the early the first quarter of the 21st century, I, I'd be looked at like a, a barbarian by somebody 200 years from now, I'm sure. Hmm. Uh, but I, I can't conscience that notion because it all sounds really quaint and wonderful. And yeah, we're already all equal, except that we know that people weren't. And so we learn that by thinking about what they're saying and then saying, yeah, what, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's obviously some, some blinders on to other aspects mm. of the world. But I think that that, that's an important thing to, to talk about, right? Because um there's there's blinders on to, to things that are happening in the world but there always is like you just mentioned right 75 years from now people will, will think that we were barbarians if, if i can think i can <laughs> right, i can think back to 20 years ago in my own life when i was a barbarian right when i i can think of things that i'm ashamed of thinking and saying and then that sort of thing right so we're evolving on an ontological level, you know, throughout our lifespans and also on a phylogical level, right? <laughs> throughout the, throughout the evolution of, of the species or we should be right. And, and this is, this is where the sticking point comes in between equality and liberty, right? Because there's this, you know, if, if you, if you try to think about them at first glance, they appear to be opposed, 
And this is where the lesson of the, the four episodes we've done is tying together, right? We looked at Pascal, we looked at Montaigne, we saw that they appeared to not be copacetic. Then we talked about them together and we saw things that, that were opposed and we saw things that were similar and we mm -hmm. saw where they came from a similar place and were trying to accomplish similar things, but through different methods, right? So that's what we've learned when we go to address this question. How do we balance liberty and equality, right? We know we're going to come across similar problems where we're going to see that, you know, liberty and equality, there's going to be times when they're at odds with each other. There's going to be at times when they are coming from the same place, trying to accomplish the same things, going through different means and stuff. But, you know, the, the first step is identifying the problem, right? Which is that, you know, and, and I had a conversation with a fellow about this, um, last week yeah how'd that go <laughs> so right <laughs> if if we can all agree that equality and 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 fairness are good things then what sort of arguments could you construct for not providing equality and fairness to all people and i think that what certain groups of people would say would be that it impinges upon their liberties right Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. so, but I think that where a, a philosopher would look at that, you know, all you have to do is dig slightly below the surface level, right? Because on face value, sure, that appears to be correct, right? Okay, well, not everybody can be fairly and equitably treated because then it's going to impinge upon other people's liberties. But doesn't it seem that if you have a liberty that causes an inequality and an unfairness to another person, it's not a liberty, but instead an undue privilege. It does exactly. So now you've, now you've hit it. And Rousseau was talking a little bit about this in, and not indirectly, but not, not in the ways that, that we're, we're going at it. The very nature of saying, I give you the right now to vote. The very nature of that means, ah, I have the privilege of now giving that to you. But Rousseau mentioned about it, but in the giving that to you, if I decide that it's uh, annoying, if I decide that it's impinging too much on my liberty, well, then the implication is that I can take it back, which is the unequal nature of any government. Or only make it count as two thirds of a vote. Or maybe count as two thirds. Or uh, you, you've, you've had this right for 50 years, but now a court says, nope, you don't anymore. Oh, well, you know, it, that's the nature of living in a democracy. No, that's the nature of living in a place where people want to assert their privilege and their privilege viewpoint over other people. If you operate from the notion that people are essentially free, I don't need you to tell me I'm equal because I already am. Thank you very much. Yeah. And so here we go. Right. So it's not as as not as simple as e balancing equality and liberty, which, again, this is the lesson of the episode. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a three-body problem. And as we know with physics, three-body problems are notoriously difficult to remain Marvel stable. Science fiction novel about that from China. <laughs> so we have equality and liberty, but we also have authority, which is where Rousseau and Tocqueville were talking about it. Yeah. And so equality and liberty, sure, it's easy to say, or you know, it's pretty easy to come to the conclusion that 
well, everybody should have as much liberty as possible as long as it doesn't impinge upon the equality that everybody should be entitled to. But the problem with that is who is providing that, right? That, that authority, right? If I, like you just mentioned, if somebody's telling me that I have the right to be equal or that I have the right to have a liberty or that I have the right to vote, then they're already taking the power that I have over governing my own life away from me. They are administering it to me. And if they're administering it to me, they can take it away from me. And that's, that's the main problem with this political philosophy that they're yeah, struggling yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. And that, as you say, that's what all four, I, I think that's the essence. And it makes me feel restless talking about <laughs> this. Why are we restless? Because we will constantly be tongue. Um, uh, not a backup. That's way too generalized. We have the tendency to be inconsistent in our uh, determining of our needs and our our wants and and, and separating those and, and asserting what is ours and what is others. That's that's the essence of of, of so much. A a country is carved out of a place by the authority of other places, and therefore other people are excised from having that space. The the, the abstract nature of boundaries, whatever kind of boundaries we're talking about, is what they're all talking about. Yeah, and this, and on a meta level, it's what our entire discussion of philosophy has been about. And we identify this on a regular basis. The categorization is the struggle that we face when philosophizing. And it's, it's a common observer effect of astronauts, right? The overview effect when they go up into space and they look at the world. The one thing they always report is there's no lines separating anything, right? right? right. These, these things are artificial constructs, but they're artificial constructs that people are willing to die for. Right. That people are willing to, to, to go to great lengths for. But when you view it from an outside place, you go, it's all imaginary, right? It's all made up. Mm. And that's what we talk about in philosophy all the time. That's why we spend an hour talking about one word or two words every week is because what we find is we look at these things and we go, well, what is it? What does it mean? Mm -hmm. And we can never answer it. And We've also talked about how just because that's the case, it doesn't mean we have to devolve into relativism, right? That's right. There is meaning and there is ways of, of coming to know certain things, but they never have clearly defined lines around them the way a country does, no. right? There are all, all boundaries are asmodic, you know, and that is where philosophy is very important, but also very difficult for the human mind to be satisfied with. It's why we are restless. It's it's, it's just why we're restless. Until next time, keep pondering.